I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch gets a little handsy this week. I think it gets a little manos. <laughs> well, I mean, it did take Spanish, so. Um, uh, you know, I, I want to do one of those, like, memes where it has, like, the Drake shaking his head and Drake giving his, you know, th- uh, thumbs up pointer finger or whatever, where it's uh, calling manos the hands of fate. The, the no thank you from Drake is calling it uh, hands the hands of fate. <laughs> and then the thumbs up is calling it uh, hands the manos of fate. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to change what we're making fun of a little bit. Because uh, Hands the Manos of Fate, better better name than Hands the Hands of Fate. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the original title was like The Lodge of Sin, which is clearly a Christian educational film. Uh, I mean, this would be educational to most Christians that watched it, I think. Uh, yeah, I think the education would be uh, do not force uh, a random creepy guy to stay at his house. Yeah, I definitely, you know, rewatching this without the people making fun of it, I, I have a lot more fault I'm putting on <laughs> on the uh, patriarch of the family. Oh, uh, um, Mike? Yeah, just being like, I'm coming in, I'm staying at your house, I know you're not a hotel. I know you have one room. Well, we're lost, so what do you want me to do? You're a hotel now. Uh, yeah, but uh, where we love to watch a movie podcast, we pick a theme, we do movies over the course of that month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast, we're in our second week of 2021's Spooktober theme, we love to watch, would like to give you a pamphlet about movie cults, and we always try to, like, switch it up from the obvious stuff, but specifically this month, we haven't done cult movies, Peter and I love cult movies. We know there's a million to choose from. We'll get to them. Don't worry. Time is eternal. <laughs> we will have to be, I guess, until we do uh, the the Wicker Man <laughs> and Rosemary's Baby. Um, but we also wanted to do something that was a little bit out of left field. And we thought Man Out the Hands of Fate was a really good candidate to do a movie that is essentially only covered on bad movie podcasts, uh, specifically to laugh at it. And uh, I've never seen it. I've seen this movie ten times, easily, just because I've seen the Mystery Santa Series 3000 episode a lot. I've seen uh, the Rift Tracks live version of it. I've seen the Cinematic Titanic live version of it. Um, that's when, like, Rift Tracks... When Mystery Science Theater 3000 got a divorce, they broke into Rift Tracks and Cinematic Titanic. So, I've seen them together make fun of it. I've seen them separate make fun of it. And understandably why. Like, there's a lot... We're going to get into why this movie has hit a... You know, some of it's just the public domainness that helped, but... Um, you know, this movie is inexplicably made in a lot of different ways. Here's the thing I've always maintained. And actually, I'm going to under I'm going to say it right out front as my thesis statement. I think this movie's plot ending twist set up everything that happens in this movie. If it was remade today with some obvious like changes where some things don't work or made th- things more explicit, better director, better actors, better budget. 
I think the movie Spine is pretty fucking solid and creepy. That's yeah. that's that's yeah. my take. Of this it's movie. a pretty it's a it's a pretty um basic sort of plot, which is that a a family gets lost. They run into a cult. The cult has um, machinations for them uh, in various capacities. But after that point, it actually gets kind of complicated and interesting, which is why we wanted to cover it for our cult month. Which is that. Um, there's a lot of inner turmoil and jealousies and, and and fighting going on within the cult. And Torgo doesn't want this family to stay here. He's just like, get the hell out of here. Like, the master doesn't want you. And, but the, the family forces themselves on them, uh, on, on the cult. Um, and the ending of it is really creepy. I um, agree. A hundred percent. It's really creepy also in a way that is, like, very under undersold. For a movie yeah. that says everything three times, it's somehow still very confusing. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think like Tom Neiman as the master is a really okay performance. I think the imagery is really creepy around like the painting is fucking terrifying that they have of the master and his dog. I think when the little girl shows up with the dog, the Doberman Pinscher suddenly like – I actually like – I think this movie actually doesn't get enough credit for – Actually being creepy and interesting just with a lot of the silliness that, like, only a, uh, a toxic, prideful masculinity and a, and a theater group can can put together. But yeah, I, I, I think would actually... Because there's an unsteady hand at the wheel, it actually can reach far stranger places. Agreed. I also think, like, I would still love to see um, an A24 or something, like a low-budget um you know remake of this like and, and also i think no longer than 70 minutes yeah the 70 minute thing is great i was able to, I, I rarely have enough time after i watch one of these movies to show to watch the special features on the blu-ray and i watch the whole thing because uh you know what when your movie's 70 minutes i will take another 30 minutes to learn about your making yes i will don't mind sir. if i do don't mind if I do. So, yeah, like, uh, that's that's really the approach we're trying to take. And I actually, like, what's funny is that, like, Man of the Hands of Fate is actually rarely covered on Bad Movie Podcasts because Bad Movie Podcasts take this weird line in the sand where, like, hey, we're not doing the obvious stuff. We're not going to do Troll 2 or The Room or Man of the Hands of Fate. And, like, instead they're like, we're going to do, I don't know, like, good movies like Ghostbusters 2 or... The Rapture, uh, and yes, I may be thinking of a specific movie podcast, but I, 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 I really hate that line in the sand. Like, I don't like if you're like we're we'll probably do really good movies on our show sometimes, Peter. Like as a, as a as as a podcast about enjoying cinema, like I wouldn't exclude something because it's too good, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, uh, I enjoy this too much. Let's never talk about it. Uh, yeah. I think we also like we talked about over the summer with the Blade movies and the Hellboy movies. Um, we have a, a sort of get off on being withholding. Um, and yeah. I, I feel like uh, if we have an approach on something that's worth talking about, I think we should fucking do it. Uh, sometimes people like to watch, to hear about movies that they care about. Yeah, so I mean, there's we're gonna laugh about the silliness of the movie, how it was made, and stuff like that. But I, you yeah, know, this is I'm not, not a hidden masterpiece. No, no. Um, but I, but I, I do think like a lot of um, 
like a lot. I, I think in in more ways than like some of the, some of the other mystery science fiction files and stuff that are kind of like infamous and in how bad they are, like a Red Zone Cuba or any Coleman Francis movie or something like that. I think this is actually one of the movies that is defensible as a effective horror movie in some ways. And I think, you know, it's, un- again, understandable where it gets its reputation. Torgo's hilarious. There's weird, inexplicably things like we saw later in, like, Birdemic, where it's like, it starts with 10 minutes of driving for no reason. Like, there's those kind of things where it's called, what is it, shoe leather. Like, first-time filmmakers especially have a real problem with shoe leather, leather filmmaking, where you are you are always assuming that um people need to know where things happen so like i need to like i it's, it's where you're trying to show something that's theoretically realistic but not interesting or integral to the plot and so like you know birdemic's a really good example of that neptitude where it's like i need to spend 10 minutes showing this guy getting from his office to home because that's what it would be like in real life and this is a movie that spends a lot of time uh, driving uh, to happy music as a way to like show them getting lost, but like you know th- that that kind of stuff like sticks in your mind. I actually was expecting a lot more driving than we got, just because it, there is something about like the bots from Mystery Science Theory Three Thousand like making a big thing about it that made me make a bigger thing about it in my head than it actually ultimately ended up being. It was like you know two three minutes. It's not great, but it's uh, not it's, like... I, I wrote down in my notes, 10 minutes to Torgo. Yeah, 10 minutes to Torgo, but then you got to think about this. 22 minutes, Peter, till the dog's dead <laughs> and things have gone wrong. Like, they get to that house and things go bad really quickly. Yeah, I love I love modern indie horror movies. Like, that's some of the best shit that, that's ever been made yeah. in, in the genre. But uh, you very often are 40 minutes into one of these modern indie horror movies and you're like... You know, I feel tense because there's a really good, like, Colin Stetson soundtrack, but you haven't shown me anything. <laughs> yeah, and I also think, like, this is I a really good time. I understand the shop keeps weird. <laughs> I also think it's a good time. We've said this before on the show. We don't expect you to have listened to all 270 episodes of wherever we're at right now and the one episode where we mentioned this. But I would say, I think Peter and mine's opinion on bad movie podcasting, riffing, and stuff like that is is mixed. But generally, when it's done out of love or uh, with with an, with an element of like less derision, we tend to like it. I I really like Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand even to this day um, because I feel like it's a movie that is ultimately or the show that's ultimately having fun with how silly a lot of old old movies are. And like I like how that that did this get made, which um, is you know uh, it's a show that usually is like incredulous at the bonkersness of how uh, some of these movies end up like uh, you know getting released and how they feel and just some decisions and it's 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 something that feels born out of love of movies but also recognizing both of them in some ways recognizing that there is an enjoyment and a fun into experiencing something that is off the beaten path from from typical uh, typical competent filmmaking and where I really kind of have gotten off that track is the is the riff tracks or the uh, we hate this movie where it feels like they are more trying to like I think the the greatest epitome of this of what I'm trying to say here is that like riff tracks you can buy they do riffs on like the bad movies but they're also like you can get their riffs on Jurassic Park and Citizen Kane and 
we hate movies too many times did i listen to them where they'd be like yeah this movie was great um but then we spent the whole movie saying this is so fucking dumb and it's like oh you didn't really believe that that's your stick is that it's kind of like um uh cinema sin like it, it's a weird like cinema sins where you need to fill, find sins to fill up your video, and so you have discounted the concept of like artistic choices and stuff like that in order to dock movies based on continuity errors or or plot holes or whatever else you've called it. In the same way that like a riff tracks or we hate movies is is more is less trying to like celebrate the weirdness of of incompetent filmmaking and more trying to like get a token number of things that they can be annoyed at. I guess that's, that's kind of where I fall on the concept of like uh bad movie riffing or, or derision. It's like, there's definitely like, I, I, I'm not one of those people. It's like, everything's a piece of art and you can't laugh at incompetent choices or funny choices or unexpected oh, yeah. choices. We do it on the show all the time where we laugh about how silly a plot point is or a performance or something like that. And, um, I, you know, it may be a, um, a line that only matters to me, but it is something that like, that's, that, that's kind of where my personal line is when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. And also I wouldn't be covering this movie just to shit on it. Um, because in the same sense that like, if I watch any other, um, low budget indie movie and I'm like, wow, you can really feel the budget. I'm not like, ha ha losers. You couldn't get bigger financiers that would have beat more of the personality out of your movie. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't uh, intend to shit on a movie for not having a big enough budget. I will definitely want to talk about how the lighting in this movie is a serious issue and it makes it so the only good shots in the movie are close-ups. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the only shots that actually like worked with their limited lighting rig. Like that technical limitation is definitely there. Um, However, the reason this movie is interesting is because of what came out of a creative process that was... um, totally inept like what 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 beast what beast was created here with someone who is with limited knowledge limited competency and yet this is a movie that like people keep chewing on like it's a movie yeah people keep coming back to largely because of mst3k but there's something else here um other than just it i i i don't i i think it also this is a completely different point to make but like I don't think that calling this movie the worst movie of all time, like I think even like Ted on How I Met Your Mother makes a comment about this is the worst movie of all time. Um, or maybe maybe it's um, Elliot from Scrubs on How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that is. Yeah, yeah. I he says Plan 9 right. and she says Manos or whatever. Um, the point is, I don't think that this movie or Plan 9 or most of the movies you've heard of are the worst movies of all time because people get a great degree of joy out of watching them. Like, Troll 2 is way too much fucking fun to ever be the worst movie of all time. We talked about that on The Room, too. Like, like, uh, before before it kind of became a little bit annoying to like The Room... Um, because of the disaster artist and all the stuff associated with that movie. Um, we talk about like, Hey, like, yeah, this is a horribly incompetent movie, but I give it five stars because I enjoy this as much as any other movie. I I think I would say the same thing about a troll two or something like that. And even mystery science theory 3000 has like, there, there are movies like red zone Cuba is one that I would reference. Like there's no blu-ray restoration of red zone Cuba, red zone Cuba without riffing, 
is would I even with riffing is interminable. And that's actually like when you I don't know how much you watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, Peter, is that one of the things that a lot of people who watch that show recognize is that we've seen a lot of the first two thirds of episodes because sometimes the movies are so bad that even staying like truly bad, even staying with them to the end of the funny part just gets a little bit tiring. That's because, That's been my experience. I thought that was yeah. me alone, um, that like I actually haven't watched the entirety of a lot of MST3K because um, <laughs> you eventually get to a point where you, that you're talking about where you're like, the jokes are funny, but there's nothing visually interesting enough that I'm like I can stay engaged for as long as these things are. And I actually think the 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 movies that um have kind of risen in notoriety as the worst movies that have been like gain awareness from that show are the ones that people have been able to watch all the way through. And in some ways it actually proves that those aren't the worst ones. Like I think like a pod people or a um or 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 Manos the Hands of Fate or a Mitchell or some of those other ones, like they 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 have a lot of no, notoriety that comes from Mystery Science Theater three thousand. But the fact that like people they've they've kind of risen to the top of the pack is because people stuck with the MST three K episodes um, from beginning to end because there was interesting things happening on screen. Yeah, yeah, and also like a movie like Mitchell is built in a in an exploitation machine, which means the last thirty minutes are actually the most fun part of most of these movies. Um, yeah, that's that's how that's how a lot of there's a lot of great exploitation movies from the seventies and eighties that like I actually don't like watching the first half hour of <laughs> or the middle half hour of it's the it's the it's the ending that they leave you with that's crazy. Um, this movie is like doesn't follow those kind of rules because it is so non-traditional i mean inept is the word i'm looking for but like it's so non-traditional in terms of what it's uh, its approaches that like there is no climactic arc it feels like this dream that just kind of rolls from moment to moment and like you don't even realize how you got from to a different place and then the movie just sort of fucking ends like, well, you still have to be somewhat engaged enough to understand to want to know where the plot goes. That's kind of my point with, like, which mystery science theory three thousands episodes I've watched over and over, and which ones that I've uh, given up with, you know, halfway or two thirds of the way through. Is that there has to be something also that I'm like looking forward to from a cinematic perspective. And Manos is a movie. The first time I watched it, like. Where the fuck is all this going? And like, yeah, I didn't expect it to go in actually such a good ending way, but I knew it wasn't just going to end with like, I don't know, the the dog eating. So like, you're just like, where is this going? There's a, I don't want to use a, an overused analogy around like a, like a car wreck, but it is just like, okay, what, where does all, all these weird bride fights, where does this all end up? Is that is Michael still tied to that cactus? Like, what is happening? And like, that allows you to enjoy, I think, some of it more. And that's again one of the reasons I like how did this get made a lot is that when they're you know they're they they're not riffing, but when they watch a movie that's compelling, they end up loving it, right? Because at some point, you just if you're enjoying the experience of watching a movie, the line between good and bad ends up kind of dissolving into I enjoyed the fuck out of watching that. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, I think that like uh, that gets overly. I, I I think that there's a um, 
people think about movies as some sort of math that they can solve. Like they're like, well, this movie had three You're bad saying, like scenes. giving it a, 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 a rating to the to a digit, <laughs> for example. Yeah, I yeah, I think if you give a movie any rating beyond the four or five star system, it's a little. It's a little much, okay? Uh, that's why it's, we all used to make fun of Pitchfork for this, and now a bunch of us are doing it. Um, the fact that, like, we try and build these, like, traditional filmmaking um, ideas into, uh, well, a movie has to have this sort of three-act structure. It needs to have its lead character needs to do this. There needs to be no scenes that detract us from the character's journey. Like, that builds incredibly boring movies. This is this builds this this machine that like you know similar like um, we talk about like uh, the Marvel movies. Like even as someone who enjoys them, like they can feel very samey. Um, the movies have scripts that are hammered out to a T to follow the plot structures that any traditional screenwriting book will tell you to follow. There's no there's no wild surprises there uh, in those movies. Um, and I feel like the 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 building appreciation for those structures, understanding understanding why they're there, and then being able to appreciate when movies break those structures, either consciously, like Scorsese does, uh, or subconsciously, um, is what makes watching movies more fun. Like letting go a little bit of this rigid structure of for what you consider a good movie or a successful movie or whatever, or even just a movie with something something in it. Um, Rather than just sorting movies into good movies or bad movies or, um, you know, traditionally successful movies or movies that are inept, like, you can actually give yourself a lot more joy by loosening your strictures. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say on that, and then why don't we just dive into the movie, is that, like, there's a lot of better movies that, you know, as I'm watching it, I get that kind of inkling to go, like, I wonder what's going on on my phone. (laughs) And I will say for all 70 minutes of this movie... I was, I mean, I was entertained. Like, I, I was focused on what's going on on screen. I wasn't, like, daydreaming about, like, could I be doing something better with my time? Should I save this for tomorrow when I want to play a video game? Like, you know, it's it's not, it's, it's, it's not a, like, to your point, Peter, it's not a secret masterpiece. It's not even a good movie. But it is interesting enough that it, and it has certain imagery that, again, has stayed with me and I think the culture enough to want to still talk about it or know it by reference 20 years later you know uh or 30 years later from when the mystery science Theater 3000 episode came out that most quote-unquote bad movies don't don't do yeah yeah um i i i'm uh very much not into birdemic like birdemic is a movie that i uh i, I get very little joy out of um i love plan nine from outer space like that's a movie that is like <laughs> Gleeful, and you can. There's a reason that Ed Wood works as a movie, and it's because at, uh, when you watch the actual Ed Wood movies, you feel that sense of like gleeful enthusiasm. It's not a bored or um, malicious, cynical product. Um, like the, these these bad movies. Like there's definitely a line in the sand between like ones that I think are worthy of notice and are worth worth kind of chewing on, and and there's ones that I I, I feel like are. Um, 
just kind of it's kind of nothing. There's just kind of nothing going on there. And like, I do I do disagree with you on Birdemic, but again, the line doesn't need to be perfect, right? It doesn't like, need to be you, perfect. No, no, no. no. Um, again, no. this is all this is all not uh, a science. Um, Birdemic is very funny for the first twenty minutes, but then it gets in the last like forty minutes where it's just like we went to a new place. Now there's still the birds. Went to a new place, and now there's still the birds. Like, that. that's tiresome. Uh, but uh, this movie, I think, actually has uh, it's just something interesting to it, if only the fact that it has a late 60s aesthetic um, with these strange warm colors, and it was shot on 16-millimeter film and 30-second spurts, um, and that the, the, the movie is essentially the product of Hal Warren, um, who's the, the, you know, the director, um, and also the lead star. Um, yep. and, uh, Tom Nyman is basically recruited his whole family into the endeavor. Like his daughter is in the movie. His dog is the Doberman. Tom, oh yeah. All his, all the props, all the, all the hands are his. Yes. Yes. Uh, Hal, and Hal Warren's dog is also in this movie. Like there's a. It's like a weirdly a family effort. The daughter in in the interview, the the woman who plays the daughter basically said, you know, it's strange that like this is a family movie of ours, but it was. Yeah. Well, they were a theater troupe, right? Like they yeah. they knew each other, they they all worked together at community theater and they made this this movie for um maybe maybe before the break. Well, let's talk about if you don't know, uh this movie was made because Hal Warren Ran into the screenwriter for In the Heat of the Night uh, and some other stuff at a bar and got into a debate about whether, uh, like, whether he could also make a movie as good as, like, who, like, I mean, this is a little bit probably apocryphal and also, like, told through various different people. But essentially, I mean, the end result of that debate seemed to be some sort of, like, I, I bet you I could make a movie. No problem. And so he, Hal Warren, gathered his, you know, friends and family and theater troupe people and decided to, like a lot of people who are making their first movie, to make a horror movie. And again, limited budget, limited sets, limited equipment, which is why it's called Hands the Hands of Fate, because uh, the person who plays the master, Tom Neiman, was a did all the props and costumes and stuff like that at the local theater and as he says in this this very charming interview on the Blu-ray, he was just kind of into collecting hand stuff. Um and so he had a lot of hand stuff and he's like, well maybe we could make this movie around hands in some capacity. And by Jove, Peter, there's hands in this movie. There's actually more hands than I ever knew watching this on a Restoration Blu-ray. I didn't know Torgo's staff had a hand at the end of it. I've seen this movie ten times. Yeah, everyone everyone involved in the cult has a hand in it. There's a weird hand, yeah. manticle or whatever, uh, canticle, I should say. Um, yeah. There's so much hands. Like, they, a... like, surprisingly, it's one of those movies where the Blu-ray restorations were like, oh, they, they did not half-ass half-assed the the manos part of this movie uh no i mean the, you know twice they they mentioned uh hands so nice they uh gotta mention them twice um there's there's uh torgo's hand gets separated and it turns into like one of those burning candle hands um yeah. and torgo runs off into the night to presumably set up a sequel that's what they they discussed um, yeah, there's like that famous exchange between Earl Warren and um, 
I don't think his name is Earl Warren. Hal Warren? <laughs> I believe is, is Earl, Earl Warren. Warren port? <laughs> I, I believe Earl Warren may have killed someone. <laughs> or maybe it's maybe it's the Warren report, yeah. Yep. He just talked about people. Earl Warren. <laughs> talk, talked about yeah. someone who murdered. I like the idea more that Earl Warren made this movie, but uh, you know we could go back to Hal Warren. I guess he was the Chief um, Justice of the United States, and he was the he's the yeah the Warren government. Court. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Let's let's just rewrite history and say Earl Warren made this movie because I think that is funnier. <laughs> <laughs> it was between being the governor and and on the um. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. He's known for a progressive court and Manos, the hands of fate. Um, but uh, no, I, the famous exchange, of course, between Hal Warren and Tom ne- uh, Neiman, where he's like, but I got hand. Tom Neiman's like, and you're going to need it. It's a Seinfeld reference that I really ruined with the Earl Warren stuff. Yeah, I was wondering if it was tying back into the Warren report still. <laughs> um, or, I don't know if you've got to that episode of Seinfeld, you know, where he, where George wants hand in his relationship slash power. Oh yes, yes, I'm familiar with. But I have hand now, and you're gonna need it, which is a fun fact, Peter. I don't know if you got and this you're gonna show. need it. It's a jerk. It's a character. reference to masturbating. Yeah, that George. He probably does a lot of masturbating. Have you seen his house? He... It's all baseball memorabilia and shit, and like basketball hoops. He looks like he. There's something they don't comment on the show. George's whole house, including his bedroom, looks like an eight-year-old's bedroom. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. Also, he has the same dinosaur pillowcase that I had when I was a kid and I still have today. Solid. Pretty good. It's such a nice touch that George Pretty, pretty, pretty good. That George George just actively refuses to become an adult. Yeah, although the fun thing about the show is he probably didn't need Han, because I'm sure he was had another, like, slightly longer-term girlfriend the next episode. Oh, yeah. I don't know what it was. Like, did they have Tinder? Those guys were dating George, someone George didn't have a week. job, and he didn't, and they they would sometimes go to the gym. They didn't go to bars ever. Where yeah. was George meeting these They just women? went to that restaurant. I get that Jerry meets women, because Jerry's, like, he's a stand-up. you know, he's traveling, he's a stand-up. He's, he's helping out the local high schools. Yeah. <laughs> a tutoring program. Tutoring program, yeah. Teaching, teaching Men- uh, mentorship young, on young comedy. high school girls how to have uh, the, the first bad boyfriend of their life. I was in the swim team! <laughs> Isn't it crazy when you go to meet your girlfriend's parents and they're the same age as you? God, I watch that like once every six months and I always laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that long. It's like a three minute bit. I know. It's so, <laughs> it's so good. It also like tells you how much that part of Seinfeld has stayed in the cultural conversation that everyone immediately bursts out laughing knowing exactly what he's doing. <laughs> Like, Jerry Seinfeld is going to die, and it's going to be, like, no one for the television show. Seinfeld dated a high schooler when he was 38. I'm 38! Like, it, that's insane! Peter, you're eight years away from where, where dating a, 30, a high schooler. Where does a 38-year-old even meet a... Where does a 38-year-old even meet a high schooler? What do what, I go to first period or second period? 
lunch? All right. Uh, Peter, <laughs> I don't know what just got cut out. Do you want to talk more about Manos, the Hands of Fate? Uh, yeah, let's talk about Manos. up with these hands what happens hand wise in this movie take a look at these hands <laughs> take a look at these hands <laughs> take a look at these manoses do you think Ma- man that, I? that was Mano? just david byrne doing some quick pitches for people to watch manos the hands of fate <laughs> yeah take a look at this hand <laughs> nobody On knows what talking head songs chip. are about they might as well be about manos the hands of fate i mean if david bird like came out and said yeah i got the idea for that line because i watch manos the hands of fate everyone would go oh weird <laughs> huh like prove it that checks out honestly <laughs> <laughs> so what happens in manos the hands of fate um there's a family uh with a husband a wife and a daughter they're driving along the dad played notably by earl warren chief justice of the supreme court you know i didn't notice it until just now but he is wearing those robes and it's really hot in texas i don't know what he was thinking yeah he's like it was i thought the weirdest part was when his daughter's like, can you play some music? Um, he's like, no, but I can tell you my thoughts on the Scopes Monkey Trial. <laughs> Which for him was precedent based on when he serves in the Supreme Court. But, I mean, what what else would you suggest happens, Peter? They sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat? Uh, they do sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, which is, I believe, below the dignity of a Supreme Court justice and former governor of the state of California. Would you say that he served as governor for the state of California from 1943 to 1953, or do you have a different take on that? Order in the court. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know how, like, if someone said that David Byrne, and you're like, David Byrne got the idea for taking a look at these hands from, uh, from Man of the Hands of Faith, that you'd go, that checks out. I think if you told people that this is the second episode we've recorded tonight, that would also <laughs> check out for them. <laughs> you go, yeah, that tracks. Oh, man. I'm it's probably glad. after midnight Aaron's time. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, people can't see uh, this as a visual podcast because they would see a bunch of Coors Light cans and me having somehow swept through a tank top. <laughs> oh, stop trying to be so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a sporty tank top. It's made of basketball shirt material. <laughs> oh, people love mesh. Oh, man. 
No, people really mesh with mesh, I would say. Oh, do they say that? I'm a mesh mensch. Okay, what else happens? This is thankfully this is going to be a very short plot recap. Oh, I can do. I can do three I can, things. I'm actually three just things using happen. the extra time that I'm not going to need with this plot recap. Fair. Uh, they're in El Paso, Texas. They're going on vacation. They go down the wrong road. You don't want to go down that road. Uh, they go past necking teenagers. Uh, they run into. They get lost and they get at a dead end. And then it's the, the dad just arbitrarily decides it's getting dark out, even though it's clearly three p.m. in the afternoon. Um, they and instead of trying to drive back home or retrace their steps, they they decide to hoist themselves upon uh, the the hospitality of Torgo, um, who is a. Man with some sort of bow, bo- is bow-legged, correct? No, so what he's supposed to be is a, um, like, uh, like a centaur. A satyr. Satyr, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but, like, at some point in the script, he's supposed to have goat him being a satyr, but, like, they kept him a little goat-like. Yeah, I actually think in the Blu-ray, it's clearer that he has goat legs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Like, you can see the outline, like, what's, what's, must be crazy is that even though they didn't, like, make that a clear pop, plot point to any to anyone who saw this movie he clearly is wearing you know satyr legs seems seems like very uncomfortable for something uh, they dropped yeah also very uncomfortable because torgo who we're going to be talking mostly about tonight cuz torgo is uh, i would say morgo of torgo um but he's he's dead um very dead um he uh was on LSD during most of the filmmaking, abusing uh, yep. a lot of substances. Um, and this mix of comedic and tragic that I just can't quite put a pin on uh, because it keeps wavering, the needle keeps moving in my head. Um, very, very sad man um, who uh, uh, walks around in a very stilted, sort of uh, goat like manner. He speaks in a very strange manner, which is also, while we're here, um, further uh, exponentially multiplied by the fact that none of the rec- none of the audio was recorded for this. So they had to come back in, and whoever could fly back uh, and record their audio for this film um, was uh, was recorded, um, and they had to do ADR dubbing. Most of them were not film actors and would not go on to make anything else in film. And ADR and dubbing is very hard. Um, supposedly, they did all the audio work and all the editing in the after hours of a local TV station, which meant that this was done as fast as fucking possible uh, and on the lowest budget possible. So there's Funny Walk, Strange LSD Alcohol Drug Man, then a man who is later going back and that same man dubbing over his own lips. Just Torgo is, is quite a character, frankly. Oh, also none of his clothes fit. They're all huge on him. Well, I mean, just the one clothes, right? Like he doesn't have costume changes. Yeah. You're, but you're yes, right. each each individual article does not <laughs> You're fit, right. That, yeah. that really qualifies it. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> get to see his Sunday best. Oh, yeah, I want to be clear. Like... Whatever he was wearing that day did fit. I, I've gone out for a whole day. Here's the fun fact about going out, Peter. Mm-hmm. If you're wearing clothes that, like, later on throughout the day, after you've left the house, you're like, these don't fit very well, you're kind of screwed. And, like, I don't know if you know this about the Torgo house, but they don't have other rooms. 
Oh, so let's it, let's talk about this house. Let's talk about the set. The set is so they go inside the the set, um, the house, uh, because the family, the dad of the family, is just like, well, I know you're not a hotel or in any way trying to get us to stay here, but you're gonna put us up for the night because I have a small child here, um, who could be sixty years younger than him. I don't know. Um, <laughs> this child is. Um, this child is very young, and uh, Mike, uh, the father, is played by Hal Warren, the director. Um, he uh, hoists himself on the, the Torgo residence. The Torgo says the master would not like this. Uh, and I really, like, I, I, I gotta say, master? like, I really did think, and again, this is just partially, you know, from hearing people make jokes over it, too, I thought... Until I saw this, this like non-rift version, that uh, there was some like sign that said this was a motel or something. Like I didn't really realize how much he's just like. Well, looks like you guys got a living room. We live here now, which is perfect, being that it's a living room. Like, why would you have a living room if you won't let people live here? Torgo, everything about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're all in Texas, so uh, at one point Mike says, you get her b- better get living room or get dying room. <laughs> yeah, he says that. That's like his main thing. And he's like, look, I need a place to live, right? Unlike uh, some people, historically, like John F. Kennedy Jr., or not John Kennedy Jr. Fuck. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you got JFK Jr. on the mind? Uh, well, you know, he's going to be our next vice president. I think he'll be our next nice president. He was nice. Yeah, to look at. Um, So, where were we at? So, this house is a blue room. It appears to have one back room that we can see dead on. They mention that there's a kitchen to the right and possibly other doors through that, but we don't see any evidence of that because the camera is apparently fixed to, like, one angle on the house in a way that is incredibly disorienting and surreal. Like, if it were more, if it was more um, technically proficient or even a little bit more playful, it would feel Lynchian because it almost feels like they enter this room and they're entering into a box. Well, also, yeah, there and there almost is something like horrific about the fact that are like, uh, like, uh, inspiring of dread is how no one will open the doors much to go into other rooms. Like one of the you know famous jokes that almost every like riff version makes is when they like can't find their daughter when their daughter disappears. It's like the mom opens one of the two doors like a sliver, clearly like f- from the um from a filmmaking perspective because they weren't prepared to show what was in that room or as far, far as we know, there was nothing in that room. Right. And they didn't want that to be revealed to the camera, but like it does have a weird thing where someone like would search a room for their missing daughter um, by like opening the door a sliver and then closing it and going, she's not in there. Like it, it, it also it might be a has- lighting thing. Like the cops taking two steps in front of their car and going, guess those gunshots were nothing. Never mind, And get back in their car and drive home. But I do agree it adds a, like, as much as it's silly, it it adds a very unnerving sense. In the same way that, like, you know, breaking, um, 
breaking the fourth wall rule that this movie like kind of like it doesn't do but it does a um does a thing where it almost has like a two wall rule and then like sometimes it it shows like a third wall and it's very disorienting to your point like it's not done intentionally it's not it's not the door opening to slightly it's not done intentionally to add to the weirdness but like it just can't help but do that because you're seeing things that just don't make sense in a way that no one comments or explains yes yes um because to them they're just making a normal horror movie the script does not contend with the idea of um strange spaces that uh these these yeah these um surreal houses that don't actually make any geographic sense and that you never really get a geographic sense of um like is there okay so they enter the house um torgo is immediately starts creeping on uh the missus he wants to possess her as his wife. They also have a very long lingering shot of a portrait of the master and his dog. Uh, he has a large black robe with red uh, hands on it. Yeah. Um, and he says to uh, he says to him, he says, take a look at these hands. Um, but he, this portrait, did they ever show the portrait on the wall? Because they always show, the yeah, they do. They have like, well, they have like a they corner don't show it ever of it hung on anywhere, do they? Yeah, they do. You, like you can kind of see it like in the corner, but they never do like a. They they do like someone looking at it, and you're seeing like a sliver of it or a portion of it, and then you see it dead fucking on. It's just it's one of those things that it. It's on the left side of the house. It like, doesn't it, feel it's, connected at all. No, it doesn't feel connected at all to the space. Great creepy painting though, like great painting. Honestly, like that and uh, the space we're about to enter into, which is the um, the sort of uh, sacrifice site. Um, yeah. Both uh, both of those are this movie shooting well above its weight class. The painting is genuinely really creepy, and the sacrificial site lends a production value that uh, the rest of the movie doesn't have, and it's because the sacrifice site was just that was it was nearby they just found it it was not it was not it's not anything they built um it was just a cool space they found um so uh they the they do- just, i mean the, the dog leaves and then dies like, the dog leaves and is immediately murdered um uh the daughter disappears and is uh just reappears with the doberman yeah this um, is this is such a like a 60s thing too but like and of course, I mean Earl Warren, famous for his defense of the Second Amendment. Um, but like the second the dog's is missing, like the dad pulls out his gun. Like, all right, let's let's search. I of course brought my gun. Obviously, um, yeah, it's in the I, I box. Do, you know, we kind of passed over the fact that like they just get lost and and stayed there. But like, I don't want to make a joke about. Well, before MapQuest or before, you know, fucking GPS, how would you get out of there? But, Peter, if you got lost on a dirt on these dirt roads with no streetlights in, like, the 60s with no way to, like, call – like, how would you get out of here at night? Do you just – like, I, I imagine – Yeah, no streetlights. This is truly, like, up, uh, up in the, the Texas boonies. Like, I don't even know how you'd see a road. Like, it did make me, like, recognize that, like, oh, there's probably a lot of people that just got lost and died driving around the United States. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Because even you, uh, you, you get off the path, and then what are you supposed to look for? More yeah. dirt. Oh, oh, flatter dirt. Yeah. How you? Hopefully, you can retrace your steps and find where your directions that you've written down conceivably uh, take you. But I, I, I like I do have this weird thing because I mean my my. I remember when we used to go on, like, uh, cross-country family vacations as a kid. Like, my dad would go to AAA. He'd get all these maps. He'd figure out where to go, like, where he was going to stop for gas and where he was going to stop, you know, for the night for a hotel. Like, all these things you needed to figure out beforehand. And I I do think that, like, along with, like, uh, cell phones and stuff like that, that is still the part that even myself, who, like, grew up in an era pre-even, like, a map quest – like, still finds weirdly inconceivable that people just drove around the country, <laughs> like, and found places around town and other things without, like, something that's literally telling you, turn here, do this, go here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the movie begins essentially with a, um, why didn't we stop for directions joke? And men never ask for directions. Um,. The, the movie begins with a joke like that. And, uh... I asked for directions. Me... I didn't ask if there was someone on the grassy knoll and who killed JFK. Why would you? I'm Earl Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Why bother asking such questions? The important yeah. part is that everyone's favorite president is now sitting in the Oval Office. Yeah, Kevin Costner's character. In Swing Boat. Boy, that guy. Does Kevin Costner's character in Swing Vote become the president at the end? I haven't seen it. I hope so. I hope he votes for Man of the Year Robin Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they end up go walking outside and finding a big cult ritual. So what we find out here and why we're doing it for this month is that the cult is uh, headed by a guy named the Master who worships uh, a, a deity called uh, Manos. Um and he's surrounded by wives that he's taken who sleep in a sort of uh, coma state uh, until they're awakened by him. He sleeps in a coma state until he's awakened. Um, and a weird detail, they can hear what Torgo's saying while they're asleep. Yeah. But the master can't. There's a there's a thing, go, an internal strife going on about one of the, the leading um, women, which, by the way, these were all, uh, all of these uh, actresses were taken from a model agency, a modeling agency. And none of that, you know, just common with the rest of the movie. Um, none of them are very good actors. Um, but it's, it's this thing where it's like bordering on like late 60s, sort of like a Russ Myers kind of thing where it's like, a bunch of women wearing not very much clothes, wrestling and arguing at each other, um, yelling at each other, but they just keep. What it's a it's like a male fantasy of the sixties, right? Like instead of instead of my wife being angry at me for me being a big piece of shit, what if she was angry at other women <laughs> that aren't me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean generally speaking um if um my wife could be mad at me for problems that aren't mine uh, i'd be pretty happy about it (laughs) yeah not that i want to make her happy let's not let's not intone that much um no and there's like a first so the master occasionally wakes up and takes a wife <laughs> right? Like, All right, it's wife time. But like, then they he's just huge, he like the brings him back to his wife guy. 
Yeah, he's, he's he logs guy. on. That's a wife guy we have forgotten about in the wife guy era. <laughs> the every once in a while wakes up from a coma state and takes a new wife guy and ties her to a pillar, joins him in the coma state. Yeah, new wife guy dropped. <laughs> and dropped and dropped <laughs> and dropped. And dropped. And dropped. <laughs> Wives guy. <laughs> Meet the new wife guy. Wives guy. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, but yeah, this this the I love my 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 sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) I love my my sleepy life. Not a lot of guys. I love my drowsy wives. Okay, a lot of guys want their wives to be awake all the time. But me, I'm a drowsy boy myself. So I like I like my wife to be drowsy, but not the first one anymore. But I like all the subsequent drowsy wives I have. Yeah. Cuz the plot point is is that that first wife somehow while they were both sleeping, while you were sleeping, I didn't like my first wife anymore. Yeah. I I I love these women and their curvy curvy <laughs> I love these women and their sleepy bodies. As a teenager, I was often teased by my friends for my attraction to girls on the sleepier side. One, one, <laughs> one who were drowsier, ones who were drowsier and sleepier. Girls that the average basic bro might refer to as unconscious or even not awake. Then, as I became a man and started to educate myself on on issues such as feminism and how the media marginalized women by portraying a very narrow and very specific standard of beauty, awake, 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 (laughs) I realized how many men have bought into that lie. (laughs) I'm not going to do the whole thing. He's like, he's like, he's he's like getting criticized in the comments and he's like in there replying. He's like, no, guys, I'm sleeping too. (laughs) It's not weird because I am also in the same cult induced coma. (laughs) Look, you know about Manos, right? Yeah, y'all heard of Manos. And it's like, uh, and then everyone's like, oh, fuck, he's one of those fucking Manos influencers. <laughs> this is all just trying to get one of those glove contracts. <laughs> hey, guys, I want to tell you about a new company called Hand Robes. Hand Robes makes custom mail-to-order robes that you can get that have big red fucking hands on it. Aren't you tired of going to Old Navy and not finding any hand ropes that fit you well, or any hand ropes at all. By now, when we'll get those kind of sandals that Velcro in the back, so that when you're walking with your with your red and black only color sold hand ropes, your shoes don't <laughs> fall off, and you don't notice for potentially miles because your hand rope's so big. <laughs> You don't get to look down at your feet when you're doing hand robes. So make sure that what's on your feet stays close to you at all times. <laughs> Dollar Shave Club. When I wake up from a several months long coma, unsure of what Torgo did to me or my wives while they were unconscious, I, I find that I have to get my power mustache trimmed and neat. That's when I turn to Dollar Shave Club. 
Dollar Shave Club finds a way that I can shave for a dollar or some shit. Use code MASTER at, dollar, at www.dollarshaveclub.com. Do you have a problem where your Cedar uh, uh, Slave Boy tries to shave off your mustache <laughs> while you're sleeping <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, to emasculate you in front of your sleeping brides? <laughs> Can I recommend Dollar Shave Club? <laughs> Harry's Razor. <laughs> oh shit, he's jumping brands. Uh, hide. You can pop off the top of that razor, hide him in your robes while you're sleeping. <laughs> and your little satyr slave boy will never be able to search through all the robes because he has to yell at your wives for not being in love with you with the, him. <laughs> uh do you wake up in the morning with a stiff back, all suddenly feeling the pain of the day from behind you? Well, with Casper's stone pillars laid on the fucking ground, <laughs> I found that I can wake up and get a good night's rest. Casper's stone fucking pillars on the ground. Use code TORCO. We know what? We only book at one hotel place now. It's called driving up to people's houses <laughs> and saying we're staying in their living room. It's free. It's easy to use. All you got to do is go to someone's house and just demand to sleep in it. You, That's you, it, guys. You, All you, you got to do. Use code. Use I brought code, a, I gun. a gun. In my gun box. In my Use code. I have a gun in my glove box. <laughs> Don't forget to tag us on Facebook saying where you stayed, right? So other people with guns who are driving that part of the country can also stay. <laughs> are you in a gun club for one? <laughs> Do you have pet insurance? You're going to need it when staying at Torgo's. <laughs> yeah. Does your dog go missing in the middle of the night? <laughs> Does your daughter come back with a new dog? <laughs> Rut row. <laughs> yeah, why? I, I think this movie would have been better if when the daughter came around the corner with that Doberman pincher, if Michael had said, Rut row. <laughs> <laughs> oh, zoinks. Real missed, real missed opportunity. Oh, yeah. And then uh, when the daughter is whining later about her dead dog, he can be like, Listen, we took out a life insurance policy on that dog. I'm rich. Yeah, it is weird that, that Torgo is like, it's implied that, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's implied that he's doing some very not okay things while they're sleeping. But mostly he's it's implied that, he, that he's just kind of bitching about the master to him. Yeah, because it's a 60s movie. So, like, they sort of imply that he's having sex with the brides while they're asleep. But they also just imply that he's just, he's just a whiner. And also, when the when the time comes for Torgo to go, uh, and the master just comes up with him, and he just kind of stares at Torgo for a little bit. Yeah, and says the fates decided, which, to be honest, is like, look, I'm not here to judge other people's pagan gods, but, like, the fates are going to decide one way or the other, right? Like, I don't think you can put a fate on someone. Uh, Doctor Fate. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's saying uh, I looked into your soul, 
and I'm mad at you, and, like, I talk to the Fates, and they're also, like, really mad at you, so, like, just watch your back, Torgi. Just watch your back. I've had enough. We also don't know how often they wake up, which I find kind of interesting. Like, we don't know if they were meant to wake up now, if, like, again, like, we were joking about, like, sometimes he wakes up and decides to take a bride, but he doesn't seem all that interested in taking... Michael's wife is a bride, right? There's some talk about the there's, daughter. There's almost no interest in taking the brides. It seems like the master mostly wants to murder the whole family. And mostly wants to go back to sleep, to be honest. You know, <laughs> imagine having imagine having seven wives. I'd want to go to sleep, too. <laughs> Classic me. <laughs> you think he's faking being in a coma on the altar for... Hundreds of years. <laughs> no wonder he's like made a deal with Manos that he doesn't have to hear anything. Yep, yep. Where are the car keys? Is he asleep again this decade? <laughs> like the first time he woke up, he's like, look, I got one amendment to our deal. <laughs> I don't hear shit. <laughs> oh man. You know- I like I do but I do like that idea of like he I mean, the master is not waking up to kill the family. Like, Torgo just is, like, not handling the B&E that's happening in its own well. <laughs> and, like, through that, the wives and the master get woken up because, like, he's like, fuck, I guess I killed this dog. And also, I tied Michael to this cactus. And things have gotten out of control. And guess what? I want a wife. And the master's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to kill all them. And I guess you're going to die, too, for being, like... I, I really like that, like, which which makes sense to with the ending a little bit. So the ending of this movie that we mentioned is really creepy. Is that it just kind of erupts in chaos. Torgo dies. Like, it ends in, like, fire. And then it just kind of fades out to another couple making their way to this house. And uh, Michael walks out instead of Torgo. And he's just, like, says the whole spiel that Torgo did. So... Uh, about like how the master um, can't come to the door right now. You can't stay here, and and the movie fades out. And like, I, I think the most artistic thing about this movie is the way like it fades out in chaos, like slowly ascending chaos with fights and death and stuff like that. And you never find out what happened, but somehow you have just gotten a ton of information in a way that like leaves you wondering. Wait, like, a that's creepy, but also. How did all this come to be? Because you don't know how any of this stuff ended. You know Torgo's dead, which also implies that potentially Torgo was like some sort of thought slave from the Master of Manos at some point. Anyways, you don't know where the wife and the daughter is. All you know is that Michael is now is the new Torgo and like and the master is back asleep. And like that's really good. Like it's it's not just good from a conceptual standpoint. 
it's really good the way they like don't let anything get explained or the chaos uh, play out. It kind of goes to its like you know apex and then it cuts to the aftermath and and you you can't help but be left and go oh wait did I see something interesting yeah <laughs> um, yeah you're, you're that's how I felt the first time I saw Mistress right at the end yeah yeah that's how I felt seeing like you know watching Mystery Science Theater three thousand first was so interesting because you're like. Oh, <laughs> silly, silly, blah, blah. Wait, wait, what fuck? What happened at the end of that movie? Like you, you, you're almost like force forcibly pulled into like having to reckon with the plot in a way that is very clever. Um, yeah, yeah, and and it is like an interesting little twist at the end. And having the director present it has its own sort of thematic resonance, where the director literally drove you into this weird surrealistic nightmare um and at the end of it the director becomes a piece of the surrealistic nightmare yeah and um the you know some of that is just uh him being like operating the seat of his his pants and being like um this will be a creepy little moment to add like i didn't do any runway for this moment but this will be a creepy moment to add but like he gets credit for that ending. Regardless of intent, he gets credit for what is on screen. And, and the moment when the, we find out that, yeah, his wife and his daughter have been uh, taken by the cult. um, That is, they've become new wives. Like, sure. The master never really like made clear his intentions. (laughs) Um, And the wives in the cult apparently got their wish. Because that's what's complicated and culty about this, is that the wives were saying, well, we can kill the man. We kill men all the time. Um, Killing men is nothing. Like, that's fine. Um, Well, I mean, later they apparently decided they needed a Torgo, so... uh. The but they say well the the wife is beautiful. She can be a wife. And the daughter, why would we kill... We don't kill children. She can become a wife someday. And the master is weirdly like not interested in that it's like very strange how the cult is like growing itself despite the fact that like the there's almost no growth strategy from the top yeah yeah the master really seems like i said doesn't want to be up is not interested in the machinations not interested in the family not like interested in taking a new bride which is is fascinating like most movies would have the master have some sort of like plan or structure or like machinations that like whether accidental or purposeful this family plays into or he's able to make it play into and really this this is a movie where the family literally stumbles on a cult that's not interested in them has no use for them is not trying to perform a ritual on them and like the god that they worship and the master leading the cult don't really know what to do with any of it and just want it to go away. Like that is almost every cult movie is really about like the people who stumbled into it being a part of some master plan. Um, And, you know, forgive the pun, but in this case that there's no master plan, right? Like literally and figuratively, like the master has no plan besides trying to sleep more and I love the idea that, like, the wives that are getting pulled into his orbit are actually, like, not, like, part of his thing. It's just something that keeps happening, whether because Torgo or whatever Torgo's, like, 
reason for existing is, which, you know, like almost like a familiar or something that just globs on but has its own agency but then gets punished when it goes away from like this thing that he doesn't when he stry, uh, strays from like this thing that he doesn't fully understand which is how like Michael gets sucked up into it after after Torgo's gone but like ultimately like yeah there's no there's no expression of world domination we know that there is this god that clearly does exist uh called Manos we know that there's a master who serves him we know that you can get sucked into the orbit uh, and have either become a wife or a mind-controlled slave. But you, like, the most active thing that you see happen is is the Master say to Torgo, let's leave it up to fate. Ha ha ha. And Torgo dies, but, like, it's basically it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like... It, it's it's yeah it's it's we you walked into a cult that's not trying to recruit you doesn't want you and um in some ways like you know i don't want to again i don't want to compare manos to a real cult but it's a little bit like uh wild wild country right like the the de facto leader of that cult for didn't didn't speak for three years and so you had all these people like the the Sheila character who starts deciding how everything is getting run. And like, I'm not saying that the leader of that cult is a good guy or anything like that, but he is just like, yeah, I'm just sitting here not talking basically as far as we know. So, uh, yeah. And also like, <clears throat> I mean, even Mormons have like beautiful young people in their central square to like meet people and tell them about like, well, this is how our temple works, and this is, uh, this is you know, this is how you can get more information on Mormonism. They've got Torgo out there. Like, they're clearly not laying out the red carpet for new members. They've got a half-goat man who talks like this, and I think maybe you should leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> and and the wife is whole role in the whole movie. The poor fucking wife. The whole role is to be uh, sexually harassed by Torgo, and then to be like, "I think we should leave. This place sucks." For the whole movie, like her yeah. character arc is a, is a flat line that just says this sucks, uh, and then till oh sorry, it's a flat line and then a dip down where she goes, "I can't make it, Mike." <laughs> like that's her whole character in it Mike doesn't have Mike has like at least gets to get turned into new Torgo Neo Torgo um, <laughs> Do you think Michael eventually get those knees? Yeah I do think Like I would love to see like a like a... Apple bottom knees <laughs> <laughs> Face with the fur I, I was just saying like a Like a good crossover Like a like a Star Trek Generations thing where, like, Torgo, the next generation, who's Michael, gets to, like, meet meet original Torgo. And, like, I don't know, they gotta go save the universe or something. <laughs> Mainly, I want to see Torgo ride a horse. <laughs> oh, Torgo rides a horse, of course, of course. Oh, yeah, what if Mr. Ed was in this movie? <laughs> this is probably the one who would be least weird. Oh, 100%. You'd be like, well, Torgo, I think we ought to Hit the open road. No, I get <laughs> I get sleepy too sometimes. 
I don't understand a thing people are saying when I'm sleeping either. <laughs> Just because I can talk like a human, no one ever clarified whether I understand humans. <laughs> Torgo, nobody wants to fuck me either. Well, except for that weird couple from the valley a couple years ago. They wanted to fuck me a lot. <laughs> Mr. Ed's sleeping with those like, like those eye things that cover him, and Torgo's like, no one wants to fuck you anymore. <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> Shucks, I, I guess I am the master's first horse. <laughs> to pasture and by that I mean the door outside the kitchen door <laughs> where there's all those hot women <laughs> we have we have somehow been able to do something pretty amazing which is while we have definitely turned this into a very jokey episode it's at our show's expense oh, and yeah. what we talk about and not the movie's expense oh yeah man of sands of fate rules the thing yeah I, I mean that is the thing like my takeaway from this is like, yeah, it's poorly executed. I think there's a lot of cool, creepy stuff, and I think the ending is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a sur- there's a general sense of surrealness. Some of that is 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 from the technical limitations, like shots can't last longer than thirty seconds. Um, the dubbing. Actually, can I ask you a question on that? Like, yeah. so you also got the Blu-ray and you watched the restoration. That was yeah, kind yeah. of like. The impetus for us to do it, like, let's watch it with fresh eyes. Do you think it lost something by not looking like, you know, there, there's a line, the the line in MST3K that I actually always come back to, not just in, like, this movie, but in real life that comes from them riffing this movie, is that, like, there's there's that line that every, um, every, every shot of this movie looks like someone's last known photograph. And, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I find that a very funny sentiment that I end up, like thinking about constantly in my real life like when i see photos that look a little <laughs> off and stuff like that and i Every i do Polaroid think like looks like it they actually have on the blu-ray they have the, what they call the grindhouse grindhouse version which is essentially the unremastered version almost like recognizing like there's actually like what what's gained in recognizing how many hand props that they have there's almost something lost in this looking less like uh, you know, some weird found footage that isn't shot as a found footage movie, but like, like if you presented like the way the footage uh, or the, and the the shots originally looked before the remaster, like you could almost say like, oh, is this some actual cult's weird home movies that they made? Because everything about it looks so odd and off. Uh, so do you th- like from your perception, like Peter, you and I are pretty big advocates of like cleaning up. Um, movies because sometimes they just get really unwatchable uh, when they're when they're not remastered. Do you think something was lost in this looking more uh, l- less like someone's last known photographs? Um, maybe in the sense that that sort of uh, swirl of dis- dissolved textures and and and, and cruddy uh, cruddy film um, might have added a greater sense of mystery. But, you know, because we've talked a lot about how, like, oh, found footage, like, you shoot something on VHS and for some reason it's creepier. Um, Yeah. But, however, uh, it would have added, uh, there's a lot already here um, to make it creepy. And at the end of the day, it's still 16 millimeter film. This is not, this is not restoring it to become high def 
from a VHS shitty rip, right? This is this is a uh, this is still sixteen millimeter film, which means that we're still we're still getting that '60s aesthetic, that '60s a home video film aesthetic. It's just that we're getting a crisper look at it, and very often the, the MST3K version and the version you're going to see on those cheapo DVDs, often in cheapo DVD compilations like Fifty Chillers or Fifty Thrillers, um, you're not actually like experiencing pick, this. right when you get to the store and you see Fifty Chillers or Fifty Thrillers or like. I start chewing on my nails. I go, and I say, who possibly has $25 to spend on both of these? (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather watch 50 Millers, which is, of course, 50 educational films about the process of making wood. (laughs) I would love to be involved in the milling process, but only in 4K HD. Um, yeah, and you're like, and you're like, one of these is just we're the Millers. <laughs> well, be part of this. We wanted your education to be comprehensive. <laughs> we needed you to know what to avoid. Turns out there's only exactly forty nine movies about <laughs> about mills. We need to round it out with a movie that roughly two hundred thousand people saw and no one remembers. <laughs> There, it's mostly met, remembered for memes. Really easy to get the rights for, honestly. Honestly. But I, I, I think that that argument comes back to the fact that you and I are not generally like VHS enthusiasts. Like, I don't I don't naturally think that the, de- the degradation of, of a particular format is inherently, um, is inherently charming. Um, and we have lots of friends that like it. And like, I'm not knocking them. It's just an aesthetic preference. Um, I think for this, it's actually really nice to have a crisper presentation of 16 millimeter film than to have what MST3K has, which is VHS rip of the movie. And then also probably a VHS rip of at the MST3K episode, <laughs> which is like several layers of dissolution that you don't need. Whereas with this, you're getting... As best as we can with current technology, a pretty crisp 16 millimeter presentation, and you're still getting that last known photograph quality. It's just you're not getting it on a, you know, a videotape style. I don't know, Aaron. What do you think? Yeah, I I don't disagree. Like there is some. I think whatever creepiness you get from a couple of those visual moments, it just distracts from being able to uh actually like follow what's going on in the movie and so i actually i and i actually thought again this is a movie that almost by definition you would think would not benefit from seeing this is not like a star wars or some uh you know like a joe dante movie where you're like holy shit like they did all these props that must have only been for them because like the amount of work that went into it is is extraordinary like gremlins 2 is like that when you start realizing all the future building stuff they put in there that like no one would be able to see unless they caught it in the theater and they would have had to freeze frame. And it's like amazing. This was kind of the last movie I I expected to see that with and like recognizing at the very least how hard they went into like, we're going to have this be a a hand based cult and there's going to be hands and design stuff and drawings and little statues. Like it actually made me really appreciate the, you know, one one of the things that um, you know the the MST three K and Cheapo and B movies and even this one like that was made for a bet, 
uh, are made on a bet is like known for like let's just throw something t- together. And again, impressive the amount of work that went into at least creating an aesthetic. And and you know if it, I don't know if this is kind of a moving into a final thoughts because candidly I don't have that much more to say about this movie that wouldn't be silly jokes. But I will say like one of the reason I think this movie does have. Uh, survive the test of time besides some of its oddness is that like it really does commit to what it's going for right it's not it's not a cheapo movie in the sense that people didn't care about trying to project what they were doing on screen uh and maybe maybe it wasn't the director maybe it wasn't hal warren that was uh, as focused on that but at the very least like the Tom Neemans of the world who is spending all this time like putting together this like set design and costume design and prop stuff like there is a care and a love that went into it when you know theoretically all you needed was a robe with a hand and a creepy picture but they like they really went hard for it and so I do think like being able to recognize that maybe made me weirdly like appreciate uh the movie a little bit a little bit more in recognizing that like you know um you know movies don't always need to be a labor of love by the studio or the directors um they but but the people that like work hard on them, it can be a labor of love and like you know it, it, the detail was impressive and I, like i think there's a lot in this movie that ultimately is impressive even if it's like a failure for all the reasons we found funny um, I still like watching this outside of uh, of riffing and jokes. I like I was I've been I've been convinced of this for you know twenty five years or whenever I first saw it. I'm more convinced of it than ever that I really would love to see a uh, this 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 the plot of this movie remade, and I think it would be extraordinarily creepy. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you need to you need to make some some changes, particularly in terms of uh, just the technical the technical base quality of the 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 the, the technical uh, prowess of the crew, and to have a bigger budget so that you can actually like <laughs> like the fact that the uh, it feels like the um, the the sacrificial altar is like it feels like it's 15 feet out the back door of this place yeah is like very disconcerting and the fact that the place just feels like a normal ass little little ranch house with like no real defining features except for that portrait it's just like it's disconcerting in a way that i don't think quite touches on what a movie about a man who worships a uh, a, de- a deific man who worships a god um who is a, a hand god um <clears throat> and is allotted uh several women as concubines who are in an internal strife about like what the what their their core ethos is like all that stuff could be cleaned up with like script rewriting um and, and like the fact that there's like so much jealousy and infighting until the master comes back it's like you know manos could have really cleared that up with clearer scripture i'm sorry like i realize like the bible is not interpreted by everybody exactly the same but like they could at least clarify who you're allowed to murder and what you're supposed to do like i don't know I mean, I think he did, right? Because he's like, let the fate decide, and then his hand gets burned off. So, I mean, I I love... (laughs) Again, I mean, one of the things, like, if you're going to get deep into this movie, Manos is, A, clearly real. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. Like, no, like, there's a Manos. It's, Two, it's not right about, with... yeah, it's, it's not a, a fake cult. Like, they are worshipping no. a real, some demonic deity. And uh, nothing that happens in this movie is part of Manos' plan. This is more about, like, what if cult members get distracted from worshipping their god? Yeah, it's like, what if these meddling kids, dash 60-year-old man, um, determined that they were going to have a slumber party at the cult compound, uh, but also didn't want any of the funny business from that cult? Yeah, I mean, it, it it's it's... It's interesting for that. Like, it really is kind of interesting. Like, and, and not like other cult movies. Like, I just can't think of another cult movie where the cult is inconvenienced by the interlopers as opposed to, like, part of their machination. And the score to the movie is something we haven't talked about at all. But it's it's a genuine mystery what the fuck the score is. Because so much of it is this, like, fluty lounge music that's, like, genuinely not terrifying. But the filmmaker set out to make a horror movie, so the fact that this isn't filled with generic stock music, but is instead filled with strange, um, like, flute and jazz sax music, and then occasionally twinkly pianos that are kind of creepy, is like, like, it adds another sense of disorientation where you're like, why did you deploy such non-horror music right now like the the sort of insistence on that um the moment when torgo comes to get the bags which for some reason lasts a million years and the music just keeps cutting in and out um that like piano music just keep keeps cutting in and out like it's disorienting in the sense that it's like it's almost like he downloaded a bunch of like free sample packs off of like like Kaza or Garage Band, and he was like, "Well, this pack is five seconds long, so but the shot is thirty-seven seconds long. So how many times can I pack a five-second clip into a thirty-seven-second shot? No, I will not shorten the shot. The movie's seventy minutes. <laughs> yeah, if you got it from Kaza, though, like the flute track would start with like new flute track. <laughs> <laughs> I had some thoughts about the music, mainly because, like, one of the things I do find fascinating about, like, these kind of, like, CD movies made by, like, you know, incompetent filmmakers um, is the way they try to, like, mimic the beats of competent filmmaking. And so this movie, actually, like, the first 10 minutes of this movie, I think, actually, is a really good, like, microcosm of what that looks like. So you have, like... It understands that you need to set up a situation, understands you need to give the impression that everything's going to be okay, right? So you have, like, all these totems of, like, this family going on vacation and you have, you know, a a goofy law enforcement breaking up, you know, kids in love. And you have the family having, like, a bonding moment with their daughter of, like, row, row, row the boat. And then you also have, like, the happy music that's recognized and like a song that plays that's like we're going on a fun vacation like if if this was a 60s movie about us going on a vacation a family comedy or, or what have you nothing that you're seeing here would be out of place and then you know theoretically in you know in then the horror movie that the turn happens and you realize uh that the you know the first 10 minutes were there to lull you into a sense of safety and i think what's confusing about this movie is that they 
they do that with everything else that I've that I've talked about, but the the bouncy flute music <laughs> stays. Um, and I really, I really wonder if there was like a thing of the, the where they're like, no, it's ten minutes of flute music. And then you, 60 you minutes of creepy tones and cellos and yeah. stuff like that. And they're like, oh, I did 70 minutes of flutes. They're like, oh, fuck it. Well, it's too late to change now. You already spent your bucks on the flute. I can't afford another instrument. You know what a flute is? Probably like 300 bucks. Well, yeah, which was $3 back then. <laughs> Their budget was 7 which is a million dollars today. So they did what they could. But that's like that's why that's why that's part of part of the reason so many of us have these warm feelings for 80s movies is because 80s movies were when even the blandest movie if you could rip off the soundtrack of 1978's Halloween like you could probably have some pretty creepy moments with like uh, a a synth sting whereas before then it was just like well we went through the public domain archive, and we have to save the actually scary string music for um, the murder later on. Um, like we're not, we're not, we're we're making uh, the dancey seventies lounge music as uh, the as <laughs> the deal. I mean, these girls get down. I, I wouldn't say they get funky, but they get down. They do get down. Well, they they sand wrestle. Yeah, there's a shot in this movie. You can't, so- you can't do that when you're up. Oh no! So there's a there's both, a, there's, we both have, mentally and physically. Oh no! So th- we have to talk a little bit about the filmmaking before we we push to the end, which is that like the director um, obviously did this as as a dare, like we talked about earlier, but also like he got an extremely modest budget. He couldn't pay anybody anything except for there's sort of a joke anecdote, which is that like the little little girl got a bike and the Doberman got a bag of food. Like that's the joke. Yeah. But they he promised them shares of the movie. However, the movie sucks. Like, you know, the movie didn't make money. Um, uh I don't want to say the movie sucks. You can check that out. Uh, the movie uh, was not uh, traditionally successful. Would you say it's not financially successful? Yeah, I would say the movie's not financially successful. But also, uh, paired with that, the movie immediately entered the public domain because he made a similar mistake that George A. Romero did, which is um, he didn't copyright the film, which makes, uh, you know, people doing parodies and people... Um, distributing the movie uh, much easier now. Uh, if anybody claims to own pat- like copyrights on the movie, they're 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 uh, patent posting. They're 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 patent trolling. Like they don't they don't actually own it. They're just uh, pushing people around. And um, the because of that, essentially nobody made a buck on this movie because like unless you were there to like collect cash directly from Hal during like the minimal cinema presentation, um, you you got paid nothing. Uh, you also didn't get paid any, you know, day wages for this movie. And that combined with the fact that, like, Hal made this on a bet. He made it on a low budget. He he had, like, mostly a volunteer staff. Like, all of that combined together gives me an incredibly bad impression of him. Like, not because incompetence in business can only go so far. Asking people to work for you for free and then having no plan to pay them anything out. 
Like, I understand if he had gotten them shares and then, like, oh, whoops, we made a bad movie that nobody wants to buy. Great. Like, they still could have gotten weird royalty checks every five years when, like, a TV station wanted to rent the movie. But, like, his utter incompetence at figuring out a way to get them paid is downright unethical. Yeah, I do. I mean, I like your theory, the idea that a white man in the 60s might be a huge piece of shit. But um, I just don't know if it checks out. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I... I don't like judging people by the way they look, but I think if I just saw a picture of him in a photo in the 60s, I'd be like, that guy was probably a huge piece of shit. Like, I uh, I, I don't think I have a lot of, in general, confidence in, in uh, a f- I don't have, I don't have that was much. his hair slicked back? Oh, his, yeah, he was a real piece of shit. Sloppy steaks at Trefani's. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that guy's a white huge couches. asshole. Yeah, I don't know if he could change. I don't think the, the baby kid, girl in this this movie thought that he could change but uh you know i yeah it's, i mean it's, I, I, i'm sighing because it's like so much of like a 40 year old white man now is more than likely a huge piece of shit like and that's now let alone a 40 year old white man in the 60s i don't know like yeah he seems like he was anyone i mean anyone who's like how dare you person who won probably an oscar for my work and in, in the heat of the night you know whatever whatever that fight was about where he's like somehow was like oh fuck me fuck you screenwriter for in the heat of the night i'm gonna make a movie like nothing there was healthy and then he made a move a, a, a movie on a low budget that no one got paid for um that features way more wrestling than most movies should feature yeah, I mean, you don't have to convince me that he's a piece of shit, Peter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the pitch is is, is landing pretty well. Um, but the I'm not going to see his second movie. Yeah, and then by the and it it does make me feel good that like by the time this movie um sort of got its notoriety, it was like the early '90s and it was the MST3K yeah. era. So like, it wasn't like yeah, MST3K we didn't have, we didn't have to have a Tommy Wiseau them. thing. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like MST3K was taking advantage of him, uh, of them, of the cast. It was more like they were like, well, you're not going to get paid for this. But maybe um, now this strange event that was part of your, your your life, like, you can get a little bit of notoriety around it. Um, and the fact that it was restored in 2015 to this, like, kind of really pretty Blu-ray presentation um, is is I think a service like that's something that MST3K gave us Um, because like the director, the director, like I don't, I want to say he didn't care, but like he realized at a certain point, his technical skill and his money were running out and he kept saying, we'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. And he never had a plan for that. He never had the budget for that. He never, and, and, and they, hired they had to hire a voice actor to redub basically all the women in the movie like who we still do not know who that person is like despite all of this despite mst3k like we we still do not know who this random voice actor was in the texas area um but who even did little debbie's voice in the movie yeah like the 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 fact everything yeah yeah which like I'm not saying that person. You can't tell because that girl sounds like a real kid. <laughs> it does really give you a lot of credit for the actors on shows like The Simpsons who voice little kids' voices well into their sixties. Yeah, where it does just not like 
Mouth. Mouth. Where's the dog? It literally sounds like it's, it sounds like us going, Mom, Mom, where's my yeah, dog? I don't want muscle to close the that apparently really upset the um the the little girl who played the actor um or sorry the little girl who played Debbie. <laughs> um, it apparently really upset her because she went to the premiere with her dad who played fucking uh the master, um Tom Nyman, um and he was like, and she, she was really upset because she was like. Yeah, and then the voice came out, and it wasn't my voice, but I said all the lines I performed in the thing, and I thought I was going to hear, like, my performance, but instead it was, like, it, it I mean, felt... she probably doesn't have an easy way to record her voice, or, you know, she just lied to her, like, that's what you sound like. You gotta figure <laughs> out... <laughs> to us, that's what I hear every day. <laughs> God. Um... Prove me wrong, little Debbie. Micro Debbie. Um, do you want to uh, you want to move to the end here? I want to go to bed, Peter. Um, ideally in some sort of coma state <laughs> where a, where a goat man can be like, "You're a piece of shit, and everyone hates you." Goat man can wake you up and go, "I hate you. It sucks that I can't take your wives, but I have a new wife. By the way, you have to murder an entire family." Haha! I have a new wife. And you're like, I'm oh, sleeping. Mondays. <laughs> I'm sleeping. <laughs> Great, you got a new wife. Doesn't concern me. Let me go to sleep. <laughs> man, I have kids that sometimes wake me up, and I gotta tell you, Torgo's a grown ass man. Figure it out, Torgo. You don't wake up people when they're sleeping. Yeah, Torgo. Uh, if you're going to have a rant about how much you hate people, maybe don't have the hubris to do it while they're in the room with you. That's the thing. Like, Torgo only had that one room. That room is covered in semen. Oh, my God. He's going to paint the town white, and the town is one room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but this was this was fun. I'm glad I, you know, uh, it, it's it, exactly, I think, uh, this is exactly how I pictured this going. I do think sometimes it's fun to talk about these movies at least not with just the intent of going, that was dumb and this is stupid. Because, you know, for that, that's not what Mystery Science Theater 3000, I think, did at its best. And uh, you could have a lot of fun with a silly movie that has that isn't well made while still recognizing there's some there's some things in this that is that that have stayed in the published public consciousness for a reason. And um you know, one of the things about movies like this, we talked about this when we did The Room too. like, there's not other movies that do this, usually for good reasons, but at the end of the day, you're still watching something on, on some level that is uh, is unique, and those, those are always worth at least discussing on some level. So, Peter, next week, we could do one, one of your big ones, right? Like, one of your, like, your very first, like, Aaron, I need you to watch this movie movie. Yeah, yeah, this is this is definitely one of my like, you know, top 5 movies of all time. This is a movie I am very very into. It is a uh movie about cults. It's a movie that we we're going to have to talk about QAnon and cons- modern conspiracy theories and we're going to have to talk about uh Bohemian Grove. Uh and it's a movie that is directed by a director who I think is like weirdly become divisive among even horror fans and it's a uh, ben wheatley's kill list uh yeah so get ready to get pilled <laughs>
<laughs> get pilled, get killed. Get pilled, get killed. Good night! If I could tell the world just one thing, it would be that we're all okay. And not to worry, cause worry is wasteful and useless in times like these. I won't be made useless. Won't be idle with despair. Gather myself around my faith. Light the darkness most fear. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>